and the London Blitz paper. Yeah. The one that shows that the Blitz actually led to greater urban property development. Yep. <laughs> I don't think we're advocating for this as a policy intervention. Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Greg Schill, an associate professor at the University of Iowa. With me today is my co-host. I'm Jeff Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Greg. And we are also joined on the show today by three distinguished law professor guests. Nestor Davidson is the Albert A. Walsh Professor of Real Estate, Land Use, and Property Law and the Faculty Director of the Urban Law Center at Fordham Law School. Hey, Nestor. Hello. Glad to be here. Rich Schrager is the Perry Bowen Professor of Law and Martha Lubin Karsh and Bruce A. Karsh Bicentennial Professor of Law at the University of Virginia Law School. Hi, Greg. Nice to be here. Hi, Jeff. Great to have you. And David Schleicher, who is a Professor of Law at Yale Law School. In addition to being a fellow podcast host, along with Samuel Moyne, he hosts Digging a Hole, the Legal Theory Podcast, which, although it's a generalist podcast, has had a bunch of urbanist content with fan favorites like Ed Glazer, Matt Iglesias, and Tracy Mears. Nice to be here. Today, we are talking about a model law, Principles of Home Rule for the 21st Century by the National League of Cities. And we're not just talking about that proposal. We have gathered here today some leading proponents and a leading critic of this proposal. And so we're doing something for the first time on the show, which is two papers and two alternative points of view. And the goal here really is to shine a light on areas of agreement. I think there are many areas where all of the authors agree, but also to amplify and kind of sharpen some of the disagreements so that these views and differences can become more informative to our audience. So while our topic today will be of Great interest to anybody who enjoys densely speaking. There's one point I want to disambiguate just briefly, especially for our non-legal listeners, which is that often we'll be talking about cities today. And very often when we say that, we will be referring to the political units of municipalities. Not always, but sometimes. And often when social scientists study cities, they may use the term more loosely to refer to population centers or metropolitan areas. But to a lawyer, the legal powers that a given unit of government has is a very important question. So it's kind of the water that we swim in, and today we get to take a magnifying glass to that water to mix the metaphors. So I'd like to invite Rich and Nestor to say a few words about the project and then have David offer his critique. Thank you, Greg, and thank you, Jeff, for having us. I think this is a hopefully an interesting topic, and I do... I think the conversation and Rich and David and I and others have been having it since the Principles of Home Rule for the 21st Century was published by the National League of Cities in the auspicious month of February 2020, right before the world began to change. What I'd like to do is just say a few words about what motivated the project from the National League of Cities and a little bit about the substance and then Rich, I think we can talk a little bit about the larger context, but I think much of this, hopefully we can pull out in conversation with David. 
So the origins of this project really begins with a set of specific challenges. And obviously, in the state-local legal relationship, these are not the only challenges. But really, in the past decade or so, what we have seen in many states, state legislatures have responded to local lawmaking, largely, by preempting increasingly and doing so both in targeted ways, so picking out specific instances of local policymaking, sometimes in very sweeping and relatively partisan ways. So you'll see bills that remove all local authority over wage and hour, but labor and employment entirely, whole areas of policymaking at the local level. And increasingly, as many of these city-state conflicts have been polarized, We've also seen the rise of a kind of punitive preemption. Sometimes that gets expressed in ways in which traditional tools of state oversight have been transformed. So one example there is a statute in Arizona that allows any individual state legislator to point to a local policy and say that it is preempted. And If a local government resists and disagrees with that assessment, the local government risks losing half of its state revenue share. And there are other provisions in there, but essentially it is meant as a tool to chill any disagreement between the local level and the state level. And perhaps even more troubling, there are instances and they're growing in Florida and Texas in a number of other states where the traditional authority of states to preempt local policymaking is now being turned into provisions that target individual local policymakers. So in Florida, for example, if you attempt to find any wiggle room within the fairly comprehensive state preemption of a firearm regulation, if there's, when this became a very big issue after the Parkland shooting, if you even attempt to regulate in any way, shape, or form You can be removed from office. You can be fined individually as a city council member. You're not allowed to use public funds to defend yourself, and you can't be indemnified by your local government. So a city council member merely exercising the traditional local democratic prerogative to pass a law can face significant, significant personal peril. So that was really the beginning of a conversation that National League of Cities and a number of others, including an organization that Rich and I have done some work with called the Local Solutions Support Center. And even though that was the origins, it led to a much larger conversation about how do you rethink the balance, and really this from a state constitutional perspective, between the role that local governments, but it was certainly an attempt to grapple with the role of local governance more broadly from that initial inspiration. And so very briefly, it tries to do four main things. First, it tries to clarify the scope of the local ability to act in the first instance, what home rule scholars and lawyers call the initiative authority. Can a city make policy in the first instance? Second, it seeks to reform some aspects of the fiscal precarity that many local governments face. Mostly it's about authority questions and the ways in which states warp the ability of local governments to draw on resources. But of course, as any scholar of urbanism or local governments knows, there's a huge range of disparity in the resources that local governments have. And so one of the areas of innovation in the model constitutional article 
is a provision that would say that in the imperfectly realized way that state courts have recognized as a matter of state constitutional law an affirmative obligation on states to fund education, we think that there should be a core of local services that the state looks to local governments to provide. And if so, the state should ensure an adequacy of resources for those local services. Third, it tries to carve out an area of particular local authority around really the internal governance of cities. And much of this responds again to these provisions at the state level that try to punish choices made by local governments on how to govern. And then finally, and I think this is probably where we may have the greatest area of disagreement, is it tries to reimagine the default presumption of essentially state plenary authority to restructure the basic governance of local regulatory and other authority, but mostly local regulatory authority. And what it does is it says that the state can preempt local governments, but as is the case in several states, they have to do so explicitly. Second, it says that states should regulate uniformly, generally. And there are general law provisions across the country. This is not really much of an innovation, although the version of it that we highlight in the model law really does say to states that they have to affirmatively regulate. They can't simply decide to say to local governments, no, you may not regulate. And then finally, what it says is that for states to make the choice to displace local democracy, they have to have a good reason. And that doesn't mean that when we get to talking about the housing crisis in California, that's a burden states can't meet. I tend to think in many instances they can. But what it means is that there is a burden of justification at the state level and that states have to be able to demonstrate that substantial state interest and that it has to be narrowly tailored to the displacement of local authority. And again, there are many instances in which I think that will be the case. We don't think that states should be disabled. This is not an absolute bar on state power, but it is an effort to channel state policymaking in a way that moves away from a regime that we have now, which is essentially plenary state authority in most of the country on most issues. So what we hope is that this rebalances, that it raises the stakes for states, that it requires states to justify their displacement of local authority. And again, I think in many instances that'll be manageable, but I think what it would do would move us away from some of the pathologies of the unconstrained plenary authority that the states currently have. Thanks, Nestor. Before we let David sink his teeth in, I should just mention briefly that so Rich and Nestor were part of this group of law professors who took the laboring oar on drafting this model article. Among that group were also Richard Berfault, Paul Diller, Sarah Fox, Lori Reynolds, Aaron Adelscharf, and Rick Sue. I'll just issue, by the way, the standard disclaimer that I'm speaking for myself and not for the National League of Cities or for the larger group as a whole, and all mistakes are mine. Can I interrupt for a sec? I think my role today is just as like naive outsider as someone who's not thought about these issues very deeply. But I just kind of want to frame the stakes here. I sort of think I should care about this because the policy preferences of people who live in cities, especially big cities, are increasingly diverged from the policy preferences of people who are in the state houses. And so 
this allocation of powers matters for implementing the policy preferences of people who live in cities. Is that a fair characterization of why I should care about these institutional arrangements? Is there something that you would add to that or amend that somehow? So Jeff, this is Rich. I would just say, I think that's a big reason why you want to care about that. I'd also say that the preferences of city dwellers and non-city dwellers have diverged over the entire course of the 20th century and even earlier than that. This has a historical basis that goes back more than 100 years, which is trying to solve the political problem in large part of the large industrial city, at least as industrialization was happening. This was seen as a problem of outsized power in some cases, right? The city would be too powerful economically and otherwise in relation to, say, rural areas or outlying areas. In some cases, that meant restraining the power of the city. In other cases, though, it meant dividing power in such a way so that city dwellers would get their needs met, which were quite different in many cases, in order so that the state legislature would not have to act on every single demand of an urban constituency especially as local government is growing and the needs of urban residents in particular growing. There's also a concern that the state legislature is intervening in local government, especially city government, urban government, in a corrupt way. And this is the basis for certain kinds of things called ripper bills, which were passed in the early part of the 20th century, in which a state legislative political machine would come in and take over power from local government officials. These were sometimes inter-party fights over the spoils of the growing metropolitan cities. Part of the purpose of home rule was to try to divide that up so that we didn't have that pathology infect the state legislature. And so you could separate out these interests and People could get their needs met, but also reduce the kind of corruption that was a part of this intergovernmental back and forth. Jeff, I'd add one more thing. This is David, by the way, which is that one of the stakes is about coordination among local governments. In metropolitan areas, there are many governments. Some of them will be home rule governments. How big the universe is can depend both on the proposal here and also on the state itself. And so all of the types of problems of interlocal coordination would be completely independent of whether they're Democrats or Republicans and how they relate to the state legislature. I would just add briefly that I think this is also important to at least the concept of Tebow voting. So people voting with their feet, all the limitations that are involved with that. Nevertheless, the ability of local governments to offer distinct value propositions to their residents relies on their having some powers to differentiate along the axes of services, taxes, and other sources of regulation. I would add to that 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 kind of mechanism, household mobility, is an important kind of invisible constraint on localities, right? It also affects what kinds of policies they're able to implement. That's right. And I would also just say that these kinds of questions tend to be endemic to systems of government in which you want to divide power vertically. So There are similar questions that are raised in federalism debates about the relative power of the national government and the state governments. One thing Nestor didn't mention was we're coming at this as local government scholars because we believe quite deeply that there are really three tiers of government in the United States, even though we are often much more concerned about the relationship between the central government, the national government, and the state governments. 
But of course, local governments are quite active and there's enormous local government budgets. There are local government officials and employees dwarf the number of state and federal employees and budgets in many cases. I think we, David, Nestor, and I all agree that local government's a hugely important and hugely important part of the governance of the country and in other countries as well. And a big question in democratic theory, who gets to decide certain kinds of questions? And those questions can be quite important, as you point out. So in the pandemic, what we have seen is conflicts between the national government, the state government, and the local governments. When we look at state versus local, we see different views on whether you should have to wear a mask in public or inside, different views on vaccine mandates, different views on closures of businesses. These are real world consequential decisions that are being made and real questions about who should make those decisions and for what group of people. So if New York City says we should really have a mask mandate inside restaurants for the 6 million people that live here and the people that visit here, and New York State says, no, we really don't want that, you got to ask yourself, why is that appropriate? What is the appropriate division of labor when you're talking about making decisions, all of which are quite consequential? I think that's a great place to plug into where your arguments differ. So in addition to being involved with developing the model article, Nasser and Rich have written a paper, the title of which is, Do Local Governments Really Have Too Much Power? Forthcoming in North Carolina. And David has an answer to that question. He calls it constitutional law for NIMBYs. So David, why is this model article constitutional law for NIMBYs? So... My central problem with the report is that I found it unbalanced. It was so focused on the problem of preemptive state laws that ignored kind of the rest of the issues we might be concerned with about local authority. And one thing I'll say here, when I say it's unbalanced, like Nestor's laconic manner uh, and like deep reasonableness as a human being, I think belies a little bit how aggressive a number of these proposals are. While they're drawn from different states, it's kind of the most local protecting thing you can find in almost any state. There are some exceptions that we could get into, but for the most part, it's kind of finds the most aggressively pro-local thing in each state and plucks it out to kind of create a very strong set of protections for local authority. But the thing that it doesn't address is that local authority has all sorts of endemic serious problems that have become much more serious in recent years. And so rather than addressing both the costs of state power and the cost of local power, it instead focuses all on one side of this thing. And while addressing some problems makes other important problems, it either doesn't solve them or makes them harder to address. So I'm going to talk about quickly three types of imbalance that it has, one focus, and I'll do it two smaller. This first one is kind of its structural imbalance, which is that it thinks about the problem of local government law exclusively as the question of state override. And this is the thing it is most focused on. But Local governments have been engaging in things that are extremely costly in recent years. The thing that is, I think, one of the centers of the discussion I offered was the ways in which local governments have increasingly limited housing supply in this kind of failure to coordinate the interests of a metropolitan needs of housing, and their regulations have had the effect of substantially slowing economic growth and creating a housing crisis. This is a problem of local government because they're frequently exporting the costs of housing residents to some other place. And this is the type of thing that their suggestions make harder to address. Over the last say 20 years, at least the last 15 years, there's been a huge number of efforts at state override of a variety of elements of local control. 
this structural downside, like not focusing on the costs local governments create and building in to restrictions on state authority, some limits on local authority, or some way of balancing this, leaves the proposal in a seat where it will hyper empower those jurisdictions that seek to exclude others. There are other forms of imbalance as well. The report's pretty politically unbalanced. It kind of justifies itself in kind of neutral terms about like the value of localism. But if you go through all of the examples, it says what it finds useful about localism. It's all things that Democrats like. This gets embodied in its legal restrictions, where it's very clear that state regulations are a floor, and we should never think that the local government shouldn't have any power to deviate below them and become more deregulatory. You could have imagined a different legal regime that treated those things symmetrically to some extent or whatever, but it's not what they did. And this is fine, by the way. It's fine to have a political view. It's fine to be a liberal. Many are. But this would have to be justified not exclusively on process grounds. And this doesn't happen. The final thing is that if you're going to propose a kind of local government law for the 21st century, you should address the full universe of 21st century problems. And so one question I asked, and I don't know that I got an answer, is that if you thought about the biggest problems facing local government or facing Americans that are experienced through the local government of the 21st century, would this make it better or worse? You could have imagined all sorts of other things it could have done, which is while enhancing local authority, put substantive limits in it. They're proposing kind of a constitutional structure here. You can put whatever in it you want. There's no limits on what you're allowed to write. This is fantasy constitution writing. One central thing they could have done that previous effort to write model laws have done is focus on the shape of local governments. So one thing you're going to say, local government should have more authority, you might say, we want to have bigger local governments in order to avoid these coordination problems. And so the way I put it in the article is that the model laws kind of invert the great mantra of Spider-Man, that they want to give great powers to local government, but for them, great powers come with no responsibility, not great responsibility. And I think that as a result, it will exacerbate a number of the really great 21st century problems while seeking to address one problem, which is admittedly a problem. Can I ask a follow-up question, David? Mm -hmm. So this is maybe a more constructive question. Based on this example of housing regulation, which I think is useful to think about, I think one feature of housing, new housing development, is that people have pointed to is that the benefits are spatially diffuse while the costs are spatially concentrated. And that's at least one justification for why maybe we would want to regulate this on a state or a regional level as opposed to like a neighborhood level, as it often is. Thinking about the spatial structure of benefits and costs, is that a useful framework or guide for thinking about how power should be devolved in other policy spaces? Yes, absolutely. So the thing I'll say is that, first of all, land use authority, of which housing regulation is a very important, but not the only important thing, a lot of it has this structure. And I think that what you suggested follows the kind of basic structural theory of government that we should have the government that captures the affected parties doing the regulation. And so states are over-inclusive of this. Some ways they're over, in some ways they're under-inclusive. The group of people who would like to live in New York City or the New York City region, New York State captures many more of them than New York City does. Of course, that population also includes people who live in California. New York State also includes people who have no desire to live in New York, who live in Buffalo. So it's over and under-inclusive. But I think it does a better job of capturing the relevant population than simply looking at the town of Yonkers. Whereas in other areas, 
I think very substantial devolution makes a ton of sense because you're catching the most important people. We in local government law do this in lots of different ways. So sometimes we allocate paying for things to the block at the block level through a special assessment because the only people who could possibly care about this small extension of a road or along that block. Whereas for other things, intercity trains, that doesn't make the most sense. And so the principle you offered is, I think, a reasonable way of thinking about this problem. And the critique I offer of this is that this doesn't make a ton of distinctions across these areas, leaving a lot of free reign and very substantial limitations on state ability to override. They're not absolute, as Nestor and Rich rightly note, but pretty substantial and would have the effect of limiting certain state regulations that are a good way of addressing some of the particular problems of localism. So one thing you've seen in the last, say, 20 years of state override of local land use regulations is when they've happened, they've happened in a way that aims at the process of local decision making as much as it's aimed at, like, the state isn't deciding what should go on the corner of 33rd and 7th, because that would just be like an informational challenge. But they do things that regulate the process. And that's the kind of thing that would be I think, pretty strongly limited by Rich and Esther's proposal. So, Jeff, if I could jump in there to address that question and then some of the other points and then get Nestor in here, too. So the externalities or spillovers kind of claim is the standard move, which is the boundaries are too small. There's regional effects. And so we've got to expand the scale of government. And the problem of this is that it just expands government to global government in many, many, many instances, because there are always spillover effects. There's very small sphere of activity that is not cross-border in many ways. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's 12 square miles. There are people from Albemarle County who come in here. There are people from the whole region, from other counties all over central Virginia, obviously New York has effects. New York City has effects globally, as David has pointed out. So if you start to look really carefully, and this is what courts were doing and continue to do when they assess the ability for local governments to act, they often say, well, is this thing a matter of local concern or statewide concern? And as an economic matter, what they often concluded, which was maybe correct, was it's always a statewide concern. There is no local authority that doesn't actually spill over its borders. That leads me to the conclusion that what we're talking about here is folks who think that there's very narrow sphere of activity that locals can really do of whatever size, and especially very narrow if they're big and they're powerful entities like a big city with lots of economic power. Those folks should be even more constrained. And that seems like the opposite, at least from a democratic theory perspective, and also from a responsiveness, the T-boost perspective that you were bringing forth before. So we're maybe left with, can you, for example, take down your Confederate statue that you own in the middle of your city? Well, that sounds like it doesn't have very many spillover effects, right? But it turns out it has a ton of spillover effects that are kind of expression type spillover effects. So the Commonwealth of Virginia really has an interest in that when you might say, well, it's just a statue in the middle of a city that only affects the people in the city. So once you've sort of done that, then we're kind of in a world where we have very little decentralization at all, except at the behest of the center. And that's, I think, problematic for me and to some extent to the folks who worked on these, because there are some independent values of local government that can be balanced against those kinds of spillover effects. In fact, the principles are designed not to provide for immunity for local governments, which you could have done and some states do in certain areas. They basically provide a balancing test. It's just a pretty rigorous balancing test. That is, it says to the state, you got to give good reasons 
because there's no reason not to trust the local government to do what they're doing, at least in the first instance. And then we can start to talk about what those spillover effects might look like and balance them against some other values, which we have. Let me pick up and try and respond a little bit to one other point that David made. And I think much of what he says, I think makes sense. But I want to talk a little bit about not negotiating against ourselves problem. And this may be a disconnect between a project that is a law reform project and a balanced law review article in the way that we're all trained to do considers the costs, the benefits, the limits, and tries to end up in a point that balances internally. And I think we all have our own scholarship that does that. And I don't want to say that the principles are somehow an extreme document. I'm not being laconic just to snow you all into somehow supporting local democracy. I do think it is true that we draw from existing home rule and almost all of the provisions, but we put it together. And whether that constitutes a radioactive spider bite or not, we'll wait and see. But I will say that when you're putting a reform effort out into the world, when you want to begin a conversation, and particularly one in an environment that is as polarized as state-local relations have become in much of the country. And again, there's differences. California and Texas have a very different set of relationships between states and local governments. And that's not to say there aren't conflicts in California. Of course, there are. And housing is a significant flashpoint. But as a proud Los Angelino by birth, I can tell you it's a fundamentally different conversation than places like Texas, where the governor has semi-seriously talked about getting rid of local governments altogether. And in fact, there's a bill pending in Florida to get rid of Key West because Key West has the temerity to come out on a different policy level when it comes to whether or not cruise ships should dock if their passengers aren't vaccinated. So the state's response is to try to get rid of the city altogether. So when you're putting out a reform proposal, you know, and the history of home rule bears this out, that between the beginning of a conversation that tries to imagine a different equilibrium and the practical reality of what, if anyone ever adopts a version of this, and we'll see, it's not as though people are clamoring around the country to turn this into constitutional law instantly. Although I think over time, the stronger the current disequilibrium between the role that cities are playing in many states and the disempowerment that we are seeing. I do think there's going to be increasing discontent with that as a basic political matter. But you don't begin by saying, here are all the compromises about where we're going to end up, recognizing that in any state that would adopt this, there are design choices. I have done some work, for example, about city charters. And in past versions of home rule, that was the vehicle for local governments to raise their hand and say, we want to be a home rule jurisdiction. And I actually think, and I've said this in my scholarship, that that's a good thing, that there should be some process at the local level for local governments to take on the power, the responsibility that comes with being a home rule jurisdiction. But for a variety of reasons, that was not necessary to the work of the project. So it got bracketed. There's a nice paragraph that brackets it fairly explicitly. But those kinds of questions are going to have to be grappled with in any state that really does take the hard, hard exercise of lawmaking seriously. And so all of the 
challenges that David is talking about will be a part of the conversation going forward, I have no doubt. And it's good that we're having this conversation. But I do think it's important to begin with an alternative vision, as Rich talks about, and play through the logic of that and see where you would land. And then see where in the practical rough and tumble of actual politics, you reach a reasonable outcome. Not that what we propose is unreasonable. That's right. This is kind of a, this is first bid, which is not quite what you said, but kind of where you're heading is certainly not quite the rhetorical stance it takes in the article. I see where you're coming from, though I wonder a little bit about whether it's a good bid in a couple of ways. One is that, first of all, to the extent it has inspired anything, it has been things that have been more radical. So take the California current referendum to propose, pitched, by the way, by the California League of Cities, among other entities, to completely ban any statewide land use regulation. So giving local governments complete control. This is in the spirit, if in many ways, the issue specific, more extreme than what you've proposed. So one thing about bids is people can take them in any different direction. It's not necessarily going to come in one direction rather than another. A second thing I'd say is that the politics of it seem a little confusing to me, at least, and maybe you could clear it up, which is that one of the things that it is extremely clear about it is that this is expressing it is local government law for people who have a certain set of political beliefs. And you're pitching it for a set of places where those political beliefs are not as common. So again, the rhetoric sounds in things that Californians and New Yorkers would like. The examples sound in things that Californians and maybe only Californians would like. But the political pose is very different than that. And as you said, you said this is really aimed at the problems of North Carolina or aimed at the problems of Texas, much more than is aimed at the problems of California. And so this confuses me a little bit because the if you were attempting to say this is a solution for detente in a state with a red state legislature and a blue set of cities, I imagined what you would do is propose ways in which this would work for no matter who's in control. So it would work for red cities, work for blue cities. But that's not how you pitch it, at least not how I read it. So question for you, why not? But I don't want to suggest that the model we have put together here is somehow a vision of the role of local governments that I don't endorse. And so where that leads me, and I will admit for me, and not speak for the National League of Cities, that leads me to be a bit more tolerant of pluralism at the local level, be a bit more tolerant of policy disagreements, local governments taking stances that I wouldn't necessarily myself prefer. And we can frame that in Tibetan terms. We can frame that in just local democratic terms. I do put an outer boundary on that when it comes to rights. And we have an interesting challenge right now about the scope of rights and what one thinks about Second Amendment rights and all of that in the local, the balance of where rights fit into general questions of centralization and devolution is an important legal constraint on all of this. So that's an outer bound constraint for me. But I do think localists need to be open to policies that we don't always agree with. And I do think it is fair to say, and this is a document that tries not to take a political position. I agree with you that many of, and perhaps most of the examples, involve policies that have a more progressive bent. But that's really where many of the friction points have really been. And it comes back to something that Rich was talking about, which is if you think about 
the valence of governance at the state level in most states and the valence of governance at the local level. Local governments tend, and I'm going to overgeneralize here, tend to be more diverse, at least in the larger places. And the 200-year history of the urban-rural divide in America has gotten starker. And so I think it's an inevitable reflection of reality that if you're going to think about the friction points today, you're going to reflect the reality that does reflect a certain kind of polarization. I'm a little puzzled, David, because I don't see in the principles of home rule for 21st century, the document itself that was produced. We certainly refer to the preemption explosion in many states, but we don't refer a lot to specific policies, as I recall. I mean, maybe you saw more of that, especially in the model home rule provisions are mostly procedural in nature. That is, they're meant to be transubstantive. Going into this, I was a little wary of a proceduralist solution to certain kinds of problems. I still am. I think federalism is often political, obviously, maybe always political. I think state-local relations are often political. That is, the political actors and lawmakers and constitution makers are often trying to solve problems in arenas of disagreement when they have a substantive outcome that they want. That's fine. And so we may have substantive outcomes that we're concerned about. But I think, at least in terms of the approach, the approach is procedural. You could have skepticism about that kind of approach. I certainly do. I'm not sure it'll work. I think giving courts the ability to divide power between locals and states is very tricky. Judges have their own biases, and we've seen that take place in past judicial decisions about whether a local government should have the authority or a state government should have the authority. But I will say that some of the things that I think we might all agree with, and maybe you don't, is removing local officials because they talk or advocate a certain kind of, say, legislation, telling a local government that they can't use their own budgets for certain kinds of activities, say, reduce their police budget by 10% and put it into, say, social services. That seems problematic to us. And then holding these folks personally liable, say, city council members or mayors personally liable for advocating or adopting certain kinds of laws, which might be preempted in the future, that seems problematic. Unfunded mandates that are extreme, lack of taxing authority. Now, these things, we might start to have debates about them, but these things are things that for many, many years, decades, in fact, local governments have had trouble with and which did not reflect a reasonable or practical or even efficient division of labor. And so I think there's a big chunk of stuff that's going on out there right now that shows that we're way off the norm of state-local relations. But I'll make a stronger argument, which is, is more localism going to make this worse, not better? And I'll take that on. I mean, one option is we just have to rejigger the balance with the things that I've mentioned. But I also think it'll get better because, in fact, local governments can solve some of these problems that you've identified or have an ability to solve these problems that you've identified if the states get out of their way. And I've said that over and over again. I wrote a book called City Power, which makes that claim. And that's because I think many of the issues that you've identified, David, and we've all been concerned about are things that state structures are driving, not local power. And that's because states have exercised basically plenary 
state power over local governments forever. And we've never been in a regime, frankly, where locals can address some of these issues. The one thing I find most unconvincing about that last claim is that if you look at the areas where local governments have the most unconstrained authority, land use would be number one. Like that would be the area in which they have the most devolved authority, where the state do the least oversight of any area that local governments do things. And it is the area where you see some of these problems of kind of interlocal conflict and failure to coordinate being at their most extreme. Now, what I'll say is that there are things that we agree on. As I said, my problem is a lack of balance much more than I'm not out here endorsing super preemption or whatever that we've settled on for the things that Florida legislature comes up with each and every day. Whatever it is, I'm not defending this. What I will say is that there are problems created by excessive local power and they're caused by similar forces. The polarization that you identify has led to both kind of greater state override, but also greater local provocation. And kind of both are moving in symmetrical ways to do more stuff that are at kind of partisan loggerheads. And so I guess what I'd say is that the way I think that would have been most reasonable to address this is not to say, well, we can't do anything, or as you put it in your kind of sir reply, is not to say, well, if not this, then what? But rather to say, how can we address both the problem created by the huge increase in local exclusion in the post-1980 period and the problems of hyper preemption or super preemption? And thinking about ways that we could advance a constitutional law that addresses both of these structural problems simultaneously. And so you could have imagined, for instance, I've been focusing on land use, but you could do it across a number of dimensions. Like you increase local authority over defining criminal law. And there are reasons to think that that makes sense. On the other hand, we have lots of reasons to doubt local criminal authority. In fact, you note skepticism about them. And you could have proposed structural changes to this way in which local governments do enforcement of criminal law or of putting in civilian complaint review boards or whatever it is that you wanted to do that would have somehow added a structural set of limits to go with new powers. And whether that's what you expect to come out of the negotiations, I don't know if there are negotiations, but rather something in that flavor would have been my preference. The thing I like about this, I want to say one thing that I really did appreciate about it is that it's a real effort to think through what a set of commitments lead to. Nisha says we all do this in our law review articles, but I think that people don't do this very often in their law review articles, which is go across a wide range of domains and say, if I believe X, then Y. And I thought this was a very clear effort explaining what a very, very strong set of commitments to localism, how it would express themselves in local government law. I just think it's bad. Greg, I know you have some questions. Sorry, I just wanted to say one last thing, and then we'll open it up to questions because I know you and Jeff probably have a lot to follow up upon. I'll just say we are in a regime, again, on most issues in most of the country that is marked by plenary state power. So we can talk about a potential California constitutional amendment, but the truth is California has broad power and has been increasingly exercising it. And I don't think home rule is going to end up being the issue on which housing policy in California turns. The level of the crisis there, the compelling nature of the state interest, those are things that the state of California should easily be able to respond to. And in broad swaths of the country, for decades and decades and decades, as the housing crisis has unfolded, states could have intervened, states could have restructured in ways 
And sure, we've seen a little bit of reform on ADU. We've seen a little bit of reform on some other areas. But by and large, the structure, when you give states the power to regulate private property and land use, you end up with Florida. You end up with places that reinforce any tendency towards exclusion rather than go in the opposite direction. And again, there are exceptions. I've talked a lot about Mount Laurel and we can talk about 40B and we can talk about the outliers. But when I talk about that in class, I think it's a fair thing to say that those are outliers at the state level and maybe they shouldn't be. And again, I don't think our proposal would disable the states from pursuing that. But I do think that's an important point. Sorry, Greg, please jump in. No, not at all. Um, I do have a couple of follow-ups. So I'll, I'll start with one for David and then move to one for Nestor and Rich. So I want to get a little bit closer to the ground here on the strong form localism in action and differentiate between a couple of different scenarios. So we've talked a lot about different types of municipalities in a place that has sufficiently large municipalities, like New York State, which has obviously one giant city. Why, David, isn't the solution more localism? If Eric Adams, who comes into office around the time this podcast will be released, if he decides and is able to persuade the city council that he wants New York to grow massively in population, they basically have the ability to do that, right? By upzoning the city. As you mentioned, demand to live in New York City is a lot higher than the population of New York City suggests because artificial constraints on housing supply. So they can do that and reap the benefits that accrue to that, like bigger tax base and so on, more economic growth, and then presumably outcompete not just other cities like Los Angeles, but other municipalities in the same area and take a larger share of the New York metro area. I understand why the answer might not be to empower the Greenwich or Scarsdale or Beverly Hills of the world to be more localistic, if you will. But in a place that has that potential, why not let New York City govern itself to that extent? And if the answer is that we have a lot of evidence that when that happens, cities don't take that step, I accept that completely. But isn't that a democratic failure that probably would replicate itself at other levels if we were to shift the locus of decision-making? So really good question. So first of all, one thing is that even New York City is a small percentage of the broader metropolitan area that New York City is in. So New York metropolitan area is about 40 million people and something like that. Maybe it's a little shy of that. And in New York City is 8.9 million. And so Greg's looking up the exact number, so you can correct me right here. 20 million. I'll get you 23 million. Sorry. If you do the CMSA, you get out to Stanford, which I think makes more sense. Anyway, one thing you see in the New York metropolitan area is that you've seen in the non-New York City parts of New York, you've seen extraordinarily slow growth with local governments using their local authority. The question of whether New York should have a th- New York already does. And one of the things that I find interesting about this kind of exchange is that even in a system of plenary state authorities, local governments have extraordinary amounts of authority. And this is a point which Brafal, is one of the authors of this, made quite well, which local governments still do huge amounts of stuff, even in restrictive governments. So New York City does a huge amount of stuff. New York City is the third largest government in non-federal government in the country after just fell below the state of Florida. But it's like really close. It's a huge, huge government, a huge budgetary authority and lots of power, including, as you note, power to grow. And that's true under any legal regime. That's true under existing legal regime, would be true under their legal regime. And it's not clear that this would improve anything. And so one thing I'd say is that 
if you wanted to address the local government's problems of the 21st century for a place like New York City, you would seek to do things that restructured the way the internal government, either they could do it or the state could do it on their behalf in ways that would result in better rather than worse outcomes. And so I guess what I'd say is that New York City has authority. It continues to have authority. It can be sometimes overruled by the state, but it's retained under all of these regimes a huge amount of authority to act and make policy and do all sorts of things. No one thinks the mayor of New York City completely useless individual. And if I were seeking to address the problems of the 21st century, I would be thinking much more along the lines of constraints and questions of ways to structure local authority to produce better outcomes. Part of the problem is that when we talk about outcomes in particular policy areas, we don't want to forget that we don't all agree, and you folks mentioned this before, but if we don't all agree that under conditions of disagreement, is the division of authority a way of managing that disagreement? And the answer to that is normally yes. When you have federal regimes, that's because in a federal regime, you might have disagreement. Now, there might be things that we don't allow to have disagreement over, and therefore you'd have uniformity imposed from above. That's second best, at least from a democratic theory perspective. So for example, if a local government says, listen, we really need rent control and inclusionary zoning as a way to preserve low-income housing. I know that's something lots of housing folks don't like. They want just market rate building, but that's a disagreement. Now, why we would resolve it in favor of the latter instead of the former I guess the answer is because one's right and one's wrong, or one has better outcomes and one doesn't. But at the end of the day, under conditions of disagreement, you might use divided government to do that work. In fact, it's a fairly standard move. So again, the question of how to deal with the question of where override is necessary is, as you noted earlier, the question of affecting people who are outside the jurisdiction becomes paramount. And one of the things about constitutional laws that lock in rather than allowing residents of cities to contest things in state politics is that it locks in certain answers to those questions rather than leaving them open. I'm glad you brought up lock-in, David, because that gets to my question for Nestor and Rich. So we've talked about various types of divides. So the the red state, blue city is, of course, very familiar. But also blue states and blue cities don't always agree, right? Otherwise, you know, California preemption wouldn't be necessary, for example. And then there are also these intra-regional divides that are not necessarily left-right. They have a left-right valence to some extent, certainly historically they have, but you might have a city and a suburb that vote for the same presidential candidate, maybe the same gubernatorial candidate, but they couldn't be more different demographically. So here in the Midwest, we have many examples of these. The city of Detroit has really been hollowed out. It's lost about two-thirds of its population. Some of the suburbs that have taken population share and have incorporated so that they can impose their own constraints on land use and enjoy other privileges of localism, you know, vote for the same political party as the city of Detroit. But localism in these cases seems to amplify rather than uh, reduce some of the regional inequalities. At least that's a current view that has a lot of adherence. On the other hand, maybe the response is that those divisions are intrinsic and that at a minimum, there's no obvious political way to pre-decide them. So what would you say to folks who are maybe a little skeptical of localism, given its record in places that have seen a lot of flight? So, Greg, it's a great question. And the problem of localism for regional inequality is a big one, right? And this is one that 
Nestor has written about, I've written about this, the, the use of regional border controls to exclude certain folks. You know, I've come to the conclusion, though, that, and this is more of a political conclusion, and it's my own, I'm not, again, speaking for the National League of Cities, is that centralization of these things doesn't resolve these either. And one of the questions one would ask was, are these problems worse or better in states with less or more home rule? Virginia doesn't have, at least as a constitutional matter, any home rule. It's a Dillon's rule state. Dillon's rule is a rule that says there's no independent authority. Ohio has more home rule than Virginia, but I think if you were to compare these two states, you'd see similar metropolitan area inequalities that are a result of lots of different factors, discrimination, underinvestment in inner cities or declining cities, fiscal stress across numerous cities all over the country. Part of the thing that we're trying to do in the principles is, and this is a big part of this, we've focused on preemption mostly, but the big part of this is shoring up the fiscal status of local governments. We have a whole provision about the fiscal status of local governments, about adequate funding of various other kinds. This is quite important. There are inequalities among tax base, among resources that are available. Those are not empowering of local governments, those inequalities. Those are disempowering of local governments. And so we're in favor of empowering local governments across the range of things, including their fiscal capacities. So if we're thinking about the home and home rule, to pick up on some of these themes about fragmentation and flight and localism and so on, is there a risk of reifying the lines that divide these places? Is there an opportunity to renegotiate some of those lines or are we kind of stuck with the incorporations and anti-annexation laws that we've got? First, I'll say it's a really important question. And David alluded to it before we've talked about scale. And so much of the animation that drives the principles has to do with authority. But there's no provision in here that takes a strong position or really takes any position on the appropriate scale. And just to do a little history, back in the 1950s, when a predecessor to the National League of Cities promulgated the last attempt to think about the nature of home rule and put out a model constitutional provision uh, under what was then the American Municipal Association, which became the National League of Cities in the early 1960s. They've been around for quite a while. It was explicitly metropolitan in its recommendation. And I do think there are a number of issues on which, if we think about where people live and the scale of policy, Metropolitan solutions, regional solutions are the right solutions. And I think we have had a history of fragmentation that has been very much a set of intentional design choices at the state level. Design choices about the ease of de-annexation, about the ease, about the ability to resist. We had an era of urban growth that involved the growth machine. We've talked about the ways in which cities competed with each other, regions competed with each other, and early industrial urban America New York's a great example of this. I live in Brooklyn. We're still not so sure that we made the right move in 1898, but that's how cities grew. And I think is a way to think about a broader scale at the local level about some of the policy challenges we've been having this conversation about that would widen the policy arena to a more regional scale that would have rules. And again, this isn't in the principles. 
But this is something that is a conversation I think is worth having that could have a broader scale in the places where that makes most sense. I don't know what you do in Charlottesville, but I certainly can imagine parts of the country where a slightly wider realm of policymaking would make sense, consistent with the kind of democratic arguments that Rich has been making and the vision of the responsibilities that we put on local governance, that at the end of the day is the heart of the principles. I think that would be consistent with slightly larger metro regions. So can I follow up and ask you a question about this, which is that one thing that giving more power to local governments would do is it would encourage more places to seek to become local governments, whether this was through incorporation or through a trend we're seeing right now, which is secession. So those of you who aren't following Buckhead in Atlanta is seeking to secede from Atlanta. And the more authority that you have as a result of becoming a new city, the more attractive becoming an individual local government would be, at least I'd presume you'd have greater authority to regulate your behavior. And so therefore, becoming your own thing becomes relatively more attractive. And so I was kind of curious why you didn't include them in the principles, because it's not like you can ever separate powers and borders. They're part of one question. And so you do bracket it and you don't say we're supporting, but why? You know, I have a view on that. I don't know if that's the view of the whole drafting team. We did have some conversations about boundaries and metropolitanism. And again, historically, when you go back, as Nestor said, the valence of a lot of at least the suggestions are towards a kind of metropolitanism. You know, my own view has been, well, first of all, I think the secession movements, once you've got taxing and land use and school district authority, that's the game. And whether you can contract for other services, you're going to get the kind of explosion of local governments or the municipal area fragmentation. So I don't think anything we're doing here changes that at all in any kind of significant ways. But I also will say that regionalism And this goes back to Jeff's question from very early in the conversation, which is about the spillover effects of externalities. Regionalism is famously, Jane Jacobs said, a region is just another name for a larger unit where we can't solve the problems that we have in the smaller unit. That's a paraphrase. And I share that skepticism to some degree, and maybe more so than Nestor, that what we've seen with regional governments, with consolidated governments is not a great deal. We've got seen some maybe efforts at equalization and so on, but we still see discrimination among the neighborhoods in the region. We still see inequalities that exist within the region and differential spending within the region as well. So regionalism is what I call a kind of version of an attract and capture strategy for cities that made that seemed to make sense when cities were in great decline. They needed more tax base, so we'll go out and grab some tax base. They needed more people, so we go out and grab some people. This is the attract and keep strategy that is sort of this model of competitive interlocal governmental competition. And it's not worked. It's not worked throughout the whole 20th century. We've seen the great decline of Detroit, even as it was an enormous city of enormous population. It doesn't really work in part because politically it's not palatable in many of these states. And in part because you just reproduce those same inequalities as between regions or within the region. So I'm concerned about those strategies. I think we need a new strategy, which is empower local governments, empower cities. Yes, there's going to be some rich suburbs out there that are problematic. I agree with that. That inequality is very difficult to attack. But weakening those cities that are making efforts to actually address inequality within their borders, that's, I think, the wrong way to go. I know we're wrapping, but I want to make one last point that we've 
alluded to once or twice, but I think is really important. And David, your example of the Bakexit, I think that's what we're calling it. It really puts this front and center, which is as we talk about these seemingly neutral principles of devolution and boundaries and borders, race is an inevitable part of the conversation. And I just think it's important to acknowledge that. And when you have a largely white neighborhood in an overwhelmingly black city, and we have the kind of conversation we're having now about public safety and about community control. And I think it's impossible to disaggregate the reality, both of the contemporary landscape of race and the way in which that history. And Greg, I think this is very much underlying your question about fragmentation and about an era of white flight that gets coupled with a certain kind of localism. And I think as we grapple with these really important questions and we think about how we structure local power, state power, the relationship, it's important to come back to that because I think that will be this gravitational force that will work these conversations in a way. And I think one answer to responding to that gravitational force is at least to acknowledge it explicitly. Well, thanks. This has been such a fun conversation. I really appreciate everybody coming on to share your views on this Gordon Model article and your extrapolations and critiques of it. Now we move on to the segment of our show called Appendices, where we go around and offer recommendations of recent articles, movies, tweets, whatever it may be. So David, would you like to kick us off? Sure. So I'm going to reference two papers that both use a similar methodology. The first one is called Citywide Effects of New Housing Supply Evidence from Moving Change by Christina Bratu. I'm going to totally butcher these names. Oskari Harjunin and Tuka Sarama. And the second one is Supply Shock versus Demand Shock, The Local Effects of New Housing in Low-Income Areas, Brian Asquith, Evan Mast, and Devin Reed. And so there's obviously a long debate about the relationship between supply constraints on new housing and housing prices. And it has long been understood that at least at the regional level or the metropolitan level or the city level, that new supply will decrease housing prices the way that supply generally does. There's a related debate about whether it will have effect at the neighborhood or block level that is theoretically ambiguous because new housing can bring with it new amenities. And what these two papers do is attempt to show not only that new housing decreases prices, which they do show, but how. And what they're able to do is look at the chains of who moves in and out. And so people, when a new housing gets built and it is luxury housing, the question is, what happens and how would this affect broader housing costs? And what they show is that it removes in the first one, which is at the Helsinki-wide level, and the other one to the block level or the several block level in New York City, shows that what people do is that when richer people move into new housing, that frees up units and has a relatively quick effect on housing prices, again, either at the metropolitan level or at the block level. And this has some pretty dramatic implications. The first one at the citywide level is something that everyone has always known, I think. There's some people who deny it, but for the most part, this is probably at the block level, it has pretty dramatic legal implications as well. So for instance, if we ever end up assessing inclusionary zoning regulations through a nexus and proportionality test undertakings, this will be central to those questions, whether there's a new housing is having a negative effect. So it'll be important to those legal questions. And it's certainly very important to land use politics because one of the at claims when people propose new housing is that it's likely to increase local prices, not decrease them. And this finding fits with what's now a quite substantial literature that shows both that new housing, even at the block level or the several block level, 
decreases prices and it shows how it happens. And so the ability to use this administrative data is super cool and it's extremely important set of findings. Thanks, David. Rich, what's your appendix? So I saw a movie recently called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's a 2019 movie. I had not seen it. So maybe I'm behind in the times, but it's a fabulous film and a nice film about a city, San Francisco, but also about a community in San Francisco through the lens of two individuals and relates to these housing issues, gentrification issues, and questions of how you preserve certain kinds of neighborhoods which is quite important and impacts all these questions. Neat. Nestor. Makes me want to list five or six good movies, but I'll go with two books. One is Ed Glazer and David Cutler's Survival of the City, which I really enjoyed because I think we're at a moment where the pandemic isn't going anywhere and it's going to change and evolve in better and worse ways, but it's going to be a fact of life for a long time. And it's a really interesting history and a set of recommendations, not all of which I agree with, but it's a wonderful synthesis that gives us a lot of tools to think about the history of disease in cities, the reality of that, the way cities have in that Ed Glazer way have triumphed in the past, and I tend to think will in the future, but how we need to do that. So I think it's a really interesting book for a conversation we're going to be having for a long time. And then I'll recommend a book by a political scientist up at Columbia, Alexander Hertel Fernandez's State Capture. We haven't really talked much about a kind of question of comparative democratic legitimacy, and David spared us some of his argument against our position that is grounded in certain kinds of local political failures. And I think there's actually something to that. But what his book is is really good about illuminating is an aspect of state legislative political process failure that we don't really pay enough attention to. And as we think about local governments and state governments and who should decide, I think it's important to shine a light on a level of government that I actually think gets less attention. We spend a lot of time thinking about the local and we spend a lot of time thinking about the national, but we don't often interrogate or often enough interrogate some of these pathologies at the state level. And I think he does a great job on that. Thanks. Jeff, what's your appendix? I want to recommend two unrelated articles. The first is a little bit related to some of the things that David was talking about, but it's an article by Jerusalem Dempsis and Vox called I Changed My Mind on Rent Control. To be clear, I'm not sure I have changed my mind on rent control, but it's an interesting and thought-provoking article. She reviews a really excellent study by Diamond, McQuaid, and Chan on the effects of rent control in San Francisco. And especially in that paper, they really highlight these effects on landlords converting rental apartments to condos or other uses and really shrinking the supply of housing. Another part of the article has this interesting idea about pairing rent control as part of a package of policies to relax land use regulations in cities. I'm not sure I was fully convinced, but I think it was a provocative and interesting article. So I'll recommend that to listeners. The second is a paper that's on my desk this week that has to do with how city structure is formed, why are cities shaped the way they are, and what is the role of history? So this is a paper called From Samurai to Skyscrapers, and it's by a team of Japanese economists, Junichi Yamasaki, Kentaro Nakajima, and Kensuke Tashima. There's sort of like two views about why history matters for the shape of cities. So one view is that history is like second nature. We invested in stuff in the past that's still around. So like houses, infrastructure, railroads, highways, right? And so this stuff is still around. And so that's why history matters. 
Another view of why history matters is history is a coordination device. And so what we care about is being near other people. And at the extreme, right, if all we care about is being near other people, then presumably we could sort of agglomerate it in any place. And the question is, how do we decide on where to agglomerate? Well, history, it could be a coordinating mechanism. Well, this paper is about evidence about that first channel, right? History as second nature, history as these, in this case, it's a legacy institution, which is land cladding or demarcation. And so there's this interesting historical story where you had the Takagawa shogunate designate these large feudal estates in central Tokyo. And what these ended up being were large lots in central Tokyo that in the 1960s and 70s became really useful for building skyscrapers on. And it turns out that if you look at Tokyo today, it's these large lord lots that have all the higher density, taller buildings, higher land values and the like. And so they're providing evidence for the specific channel for why history affects city structure today. That's so interesting. It sounds so much like the Brooks and Lutz papers on the structure of Los Angeles and the Brooks and Lutz papers on the cost of urban assembly. So it's like there's two papers that we've studied in Los Angeles now taken to yeah. Japan. That's super yeah. cool. It is cool. The other thing that's kind of cool about this paper is there's this reversal of fortune. So large lots weren't very useful before skyscrapers. And so it's if you look like before 1970, when Tokyo was still really a low-rise city, there's no advantage to these large lot places. They don't look more dense. They don't look more valuable. And it's only after 1970 where you see this premium. It's also related, let me, let me just call out a couple other papers. It's also related to these great city fire papers. So the sealed love paper on San Francisco and the Hornbeck and Kennison paper on the Boston fire, where they find when the large swaths of the central city burn down, that sort of unlocks these sites for development to current best potential. Very cool. So I'm going to flag an article from the Wall Street Journal. Headline is sky-high vaccination rates and zero taxes make Dubai a pandemic boomtown. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how the pandemic is going to affect cities. And it's all obviously very premature to make long-run predictions. At the same time, something very interesting is going on in Dubai, which was below my radar. So they seem to have identified a really interesting political equilibrium that is kind of impossible to imagine in the United States. It's always been attractive to wealthy people and business elites, some celebrities and so on. It's become a kind of second or one and a half tier global financial center. But now there are some additional pull factors. So extremely high vaccination rates on the one hand, paired with very light COVID restrictions on the other. They have abolished their income tax. They've also liberalized some of their social policies, as well as their visa rules. They've created a 10-year visa. On top of that, they're benefiting from some tailwinds or push factors driving people out of other places, like political developments in Hong Kong and very severe pandemic quarantine policies in places like Singapore and Tokyo. In fact, it's basically impossible to go to Japan at all right now as a foreigner. So it's a very interesting look at a city that many urbanists don't like. I'm not really advocating sort of in favor or against, but rather it's an interesting example of a place acting as a magnet. I should add, very few Americans, relatively speaking, are moving there. At least that appears to be the case. I'm not sure if there is hard data on that. And I would speculate that one reason is that we have a global income tax. And so that's something that differentiates the United States from some of our European peers, for example. If really that is your goal, you're probably better off in Texas or Vegas or Florida or something. Um, but a lot of Europeans and people from other countries that have different tax policies seem to be attracted to that bundle 
that Dubai is assembling. What lesson that offers, positive, negative for our country, who knows? But I thought that was an interesting piece. So thank you all so much for joining us for this stimulating conversation. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to today's show. For Craig Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Powell. Check the show notes for links to some of the articles we discussed on today's show. And let us know what you think of today's show on Twitter. The show's handle is at Densely Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Schill. I'm at Jeff Arlen. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you do your podcast. And take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover our show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants that do not necessarily represent the views of those of Rebecca Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.